When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Um, Today, we're going to talk about an issue Uh, that I've long been fascinated by, uh, but that's becoming ever more important. And it's the issue that has to deal with the undertreatment of pain and especially chronic pain, and especially in America. I mean, we've all familiar with the overdose crisis and the overpushing and prescribing of opioids by the pharmaceutical companies and now the problems with overdose connected with fentanyl and other drugs like that. But there's been a flip side to this thing, which is that opioids have been around for a very long time, thousands of years, in fact, uh, for treating pain. And the medication of pain is one that has gone through all sorts of changes and waves over the past years and decades and even centuries. Now, my guest today 
is Kate Nicholson. Kate is, I mean, a brilliant lawyer, graduated Harvard Law School many years ago, worked in the Justice Department Civil Rights Division for a couple decades. But the reason I'm having her on now is because she recently started an organization called the National Pain Advocacy Center, specifically devoted to advancing the health and human rights of people in pain. So, Kate, thank you so much for being my guest today. I'm delighted to have you on, and uh, let's get started. I'm delighted to be here. Your work dealing with people with disabilities influenced some of your thinking on this, but perhaps even more so was your own personal experience with really terrible pain for a really long period of time. So just tell me a little more about what that was like and what you learned through the process. When my pain began, I was already working as uh, a civil rights attorney in the U.S. Department of Justice, doing primarily health-related civil rights law. This was Sunday afternoon in August of 1994. I sat down to get to work like I always did. And after about 30 minutes, my back started to burn really badly. Uh, It felt a little like acid was eating my spine. And pretty quickly, the pain intensified. And uh, a lot of the muscles in my body uh, seized up on me. And I ended up in a face plant on the floor of my office. It turns out that I had had a surgery and a doctor had severed a part of the nerve plexus leading into my spinal cord. And the consequences only appeared when the nerves began to regenerate. Uh, scarring and adhesions sort of embedded and formed and caused a lot of problems for me. And so like many chronic pain patients, I entered a real slog through the healthcare system for about three years. Uh, There was a lot of inflammation in my spine, and so they thought maybe it was this rare uh, arthritic disorder. I had abnormal nerve conduction studies, which isn't so surprising since I had, uh, you know, difficulty walking, but uh, they thought maybe I had MS. So um, it took a long time to get to, to the bottom of what was going on. But meanwhile, you're working throughout this period mostly? I was. I took a few uh, leaves of absence um, because I was also being treated throughout this this time. Um, And I tried, gosh, uh, about 37 different kinds of treatment. And some of them were integrative things like biofeedback and self-hypnosis. And I tried a lot of different kinds of medication, though not opioids initially, physical therapy, massage, you know, uh, just a host of different things. I did have a surgery where they tried to go in and separate uh, the scarring, um, but it, it was not successful. And so when did you start relying on opioids to manage it was, the pain? It was that day. It was a, a really depressing day in my life uh, because I went to the doctor. My, my, it was at this point, I'm, I'm so disabled that my husband was literally having to carry me everywhere. So he's carrying me into the doctor's office. We've had this very hopeful surgery that we'd been sort of thinking would, would address things. And it was that day that the doctors basically... Uh, said there will be no cure. Things are not going to get better. They're probably going to get worse. We've tried everything. You know, we've tried nerve blocks. We've tried every medication and it's not working. And so now we think you really need to try prescription opioids. And I had avoided them up to that point because I was afraid of them. I had read things and was worried about addiction. I was afraid that I would become, you know, sort of fuzzy and unable to to think, uh, because my only experience with taking opioids in the past had been post-surgically. But it turned out that that none of that was really the case, that once I did start them, 
I really improved. I wasn't foggy. I was I was in less pain and able to to work better and to think better. And so they were really enormously helpful to me. Which ones were you using? We ended up with methadone. Probably my doctors posited that's because the way it's formulated in the U.S. It also has an agent that helps with uh, certain neurological conditions or neuropathic pain. So you get onto the opioids. You're still dealing with the pain. Now the opioids are helping. The methadone's helping. You're able to work. And, and then I, I just sort of continued my life. I mean, I uh, I still was very limited. So I had to argue cases locally, lying in a reclining folding lawn chair and oversee litigation across the country using video teleconferencing, which was brand new in the early 90s, at least for, for the kinds of work that I was doing. So I remained limited in my mobility, but I was able to continue to work and function despite uh -huh. those difficult circumstances. And so what's the connection between your being prescribed opioids successfully deal with your pain and uh, what then emerges is this massive overprescribing of opioids. H how does your personal story fit into the bigger picture of what's going on in the in the country? Well, in a couple ways. I mean, first of all, um, there was a liberalization of prescribing, uh, sort of starting in the 80s and the early 90s, uh, there was a recognition that pain was undertreated. And that is true. That remains true. Pain is the number one cause of disability, uh, both globally and the U.S. Daily pain affects some 50 million Americans and, and profoundly impactful pain like mine, some 20 million. So it is still a very serious problem. But that genuine concern was in some ways sort of hijacked by pharmaceutical malfeasance and the promotion of the idea that if you had pain, you couldn't become addicted to these medications, the understatement of the risks. And, and, the, and really, the risks are relatively low, but it's still a small but significant group of people who were harmed, right? So that was the connection. But also the other connection with me is that I didn't have cancer pain. So it is quite possible that I would never have been uh, offered opioids even after trying 37 different kinds of treatment over three years. Because when the big C is involved, doctors are ready to prescribe opioids. But if it's something else, even back then, they would be leery of this sort of thing. I remember when the late 90s, mid-90s, when Purdue Pharma, you know, the now infamous pharmaceutical company owned by the Sackler family, came up with OxyContin, and it initially appeared to be virtually a miracle drug, right? That people dealing with serious pain were finding great relief from this thing, and it seemed like a very positive development. Development, um, but obviously things, and that may have been true for many people. Um, yet at the same time, we then see them beginning to promote these drugs much more aggressively to all sorts of people. Um, and what's your take about what happened with that, with the Purdue Farm and the other companies? The theory behind uh, oxycotton is that if you have pain that lasts, you know all the time, that taking a pill that's going to spike and then wear off every few hours might not be as effective as something that's going to have a slow extended release through a period of time. Um, and OxyContin was marketed to do that. It wasn't as effective as it was marketed to be in terms of how long the range lasted and there were some problems with it. But I think the bigger issue with OxyContin was in the way it was marketed, the understatement of the risks and um, the larger availability of it. And pitching to a lot of doctors and medical professionals who really are not very trained in dealing with pain, right? Right. Again, that's that's the other problem. You know, you sort of have this under-acknowledged condition, pain, partly because it's ubiquitous, because we all have pain at some level, but most people don't really understand that, well, acute pain is 
adaptive and normal and people who have a genetic condition that makes them not able to feel pain will not live very long. So it's necessary that we experience pain to teach us to rest or, or seek medical care. Chronic pain is something very different. It's often described by experts as a disease because it actually isn't adaptive. It, it damages the body, affecting almost every organ system, and that's why it requires treatment. I'm just thinking, you know, because also people talk about real pain or unreal pain or physical pain versus emotional pain or or how it's all mixed up or pain exists in the brain or, you know, different cultures experience pain differently. What's your thinking about this reality of pain? Well, I think it's all real, whether it's physical or emotional pain, right? I, I don't, I, I think it's all real. I think there are spectrums. Uh, like I said, the difference between sort of the kind of pain that everyone experiences in a small pain and having intractable pain that's more like a disease, just as there's a difference between people feeling sad and, and people having intractable depression. I, th I think there are, there are spectrums in many illnesses. And it is in the brain. It is experienced in the brain. But a lot of our body operates from our brain. Um, so that's, that's you know, sort of a, a funny Cartesian idea of the division between mind and body that, that just isn't biologically accurate. The thing that is true about the connection between emotions and pain is that the way pain works is it's a, you know, a noxious signal. But if we didn't have an emotional response to it, we wouldn't react to that signal. And so there is a, a connection between how we experience pain and the emotional experience of pain. So I think it's, it's a spectrum, but, um, Pain is serious. Yeah. So you lived with this pain in a very serious way for, what, almost 20 years till you had this relatively successful surgery that moderated it quite a bit? That's true. I mean, it was a little more complicated than that. Um, I was using a medical device that has advanced a lot called a spinal stimulator that was starting to improve things for me a little bit. And then I had the surgery um, on the spinal cord issue. Um and moved to Colorado, uh, was starting to learn to walk again, and was really improving. Um, and that's what brought me into this current conversation, because I was finally after, you know, almost two decades of trying to, trying to get a better quality of life, that possibility was really in front of me. And I was rehabilitating and learning to walk again and going down on the medication. And I went into my doctor's office one day um, and she said, I'm not going to prescribe opioids anymore to any of my patients and you won't find anyone else in the area who's willing to either. And this was in 2015. And what had happened is that a local clinician um, who was well-respected had fallen under DEA investigation for opiate prescribing. And that really just sent shockwaves through the whole medical community locally. And this was coming at a time I mean, prescribing in America started to drop in 2010. There was a growing awareness um, and pushback in the press. I was worried. I said, well, can't you at least give me a taper plan? Because I knew that people who take opioids long-term become physically dependent on them, which is different from being addicted. It, it lacks the sort of compulsive use, but it's dangerous to stop the medication abruptly. And she just wasn't willing to, to help me. And luckily, I had a prior treatment team in DC where I lived before, and I was able to go back there. And they gave me a taper plan, and um, I was able to get off of them. And as I said, I was already improving. And so it didn't cause uh, any major problems in my 
personal condition, but uh, it did let me see what was coming in the environment. Uh-huh. So now you're able to live a life where you have occasional pain and no opioids or what? I still have continual pain, but it's it's at a very low level. It's not nearly as severe. Um, it doesn't limit my activities very much. And I don't require use of any medications anymore. I do use a lot of complementary and adjunctive techniques. I mean, I started meditating very early on uh, when I had pain and using mindfulness techniques. But yeah, I no longer require use of prescribed opioids. So what instigated you to get into this issue as an advocate was that experience of having a doctor want to cut you off the opioids right away like that? I mean, you must have been furious. Exactly. Well, I was mostly scared. I mean, I'd been working so hard to get better and and I thought everything was going to you know, collapse in front of me. And I had been hearing through the disability rights community about more and more people being cut off of their pain medication. So I got up and did a TEDx talk and started advocating about, you know, the appropriate use of of opioids and people being denied care. And I was also interested in that because of some of my previous work. As I mentioned to you, I was a health-related civil rights attorney, and some of my early cases were in the HIV and AIDS crisis. And what we saw was that in these public health crises, the people we're trying to help often become stigmatized and then denied care. And so one of my big cases was this case called Bragdon versus Abbott, which was uh, about whether someone even with asymptomatic HIV could have access to basic dental care. And we had to win that right all the way in the U.S. Supreme Court. So it is a phenomenon of the, I think, public health crises that people often become stigmatized and that, that those stigmas can result in discrimination and barriers to, to health care. And so having had that professional experience and then the personal experience, it seemed important uh, for me to be able to get up and talk about it. And people were sadly going to take me seriously because I was someone who used them for many years, got off of them with no trouble, and was not using them anymore. And did you find that there was already a substantial advocacy world of people trying to make this an issue? Or were medical associations alert to this? Or were the the doctors mostly running scared as well, like your doctor had been? I think mostly when I first stepped into it, there were a lot of people running scared. Uh, Since that time, there's been more advocacy. I mean, the American Medical Association has certainly become more involved. A lot of things changed in the conversation in the United States when the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued guidance for prescribing opioids for chronic pain. Um, And a lot of the recommendations in the guideline are, are very sensible. But a couple of the provisions were very concrete, and they became really weaponized and, and used by law enforcement, insurers, uh, and a lot of policy actors to limit prescribed opioids in a way that meant that people who need them to manage serious conditions, including cancer and sickle cell disease and multiple sclerosis, had trouble getting access at the pharmacy. And doctors either abandoned their patients, stopped prescribing, uh, forcibly tapered people, which is a dangerous practice that public health agencies have now come out against, but it's still happening to people all the time. There was a a recent update to a survey done at the University of Michigan that looked at nine different states, and they found that more than 50% of primary care providers will not take on a new patient who uses opioids to manage pain. That's extraordinary. A different survey found that 81% are reluctant to. So people are losing access not just to medication, but to healthcare altogether. It's such another example of sort of widespread physician fear and ignorance undermining effective treatment for people. 
We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. You and I have talked briefly about, I I sometimes see more and more analogies between what's going on in this issue of pain management and what's going on in the issue of tobacco harm reduction, where you have these uh, vaping devices and heat not burn device and e-cigarettes, which are actually can be quite effective in helping long-term smokers quit smoking. But because people got so freaked out about young people using e-cigs and vaping and jeweling, that there's massive crackdown. And you now have doctors believing all sorts of things that are absolutely false, according to the scientific evidence, and being fearful of um, giving correct uh, information and oftentimes being more guided by inaccurate headlines than they are by uh, what's really going on. And people read about, you know, the opioid overdose crisis, which is very real and very serious. And then they think they can't prescribe opioids. 
And meanwhile, I think, right, I mean, early 20 years ago, 15 years ago, what was driving the increase in drug addiction and overdose fatalities, I think, was this overaggressive marketing by the pharmaceutical companies, by the Purdue Pharmas and a range of others. But for the last 10 to 15 years, you know, pharmaceuticals, opioids, I think, play less and less of a role. And doctor overprescribing plays even less of a role. And more and more, it has to do with heroin or fentanyl or people getting drugs that were legally prescribed to somebody else, but now they're getting their hands on it. I mean, basically, that's what's going on, right? Right. I mean, I think it's always been the case if you look at the surveys for drug use and health that even in the days when uh, prescription opioids were showing up in, in overdose deaths, if you look at all the surveys, it looks like most people who were using them non-medically or misusing them at greatest risk for addiction or overdose or were not actually the direct recipients of a prescription from a doctor. The biggest problem, even with prescribed opioids, was diversion. And that doesn't mean that some people weren't prescribed an opioid and became addicted. That, of course, happened as well. But it's a relatively small percentage of people. The bigger problem were these leftover supplies in medicine cabinets or uh, distribution channels in, in hospitals where people were able to get their hands on a prescribed opioid that wasn't given to them by a doctor directly. But because there was liberalized prescribing, the supply was was so much greater. So, I mean, I think that's certainly true. There are lots of sort of chinks in the armor in the discussion of the addictiveness of these medications. NIDA director Nora Volkow, who I think has very little interest in understating the problem since her job is fighting, you know, sort of against addiction uh, and misuse, says that even when they're prescribed for chronic pain, which is sort of longer term prescribing, and so the risks are higher, um, and even in groups of people who have pre-existing risk factors, whether those be concomitant mental health issues or prior substance use, problematic prior substance use, she says that well-documented studies say the risk is less than 8%. And often, you know, it's it's much lower than that. Now, that's still a significant, it's a small percentage, but it's a significant percentage of people. Right. But my understanding also is that if you look at the people who are being prescribed opioids by physicians for their pain, that among the people who have never had an issue with misuse of substances before, the likelihood that they're now going to get addicted exists but it's very low. It's 1%. It's less than 1%. Whereas most of the people getting in trouble are oftentimes people who had issues with substance abuse earlier, and now they're in a pain situation, and uh, they may be more susceptible to getting in trouble. And of course, that group of people who do have pain and are prescribed opioids and then end up with a use disorder too are probably the most vulnerable in the current environment. Well, you know, I remember there was a doctor, his name was Hurwitz. I think he was the subject of a 60-minute special report. And there was a certain category of physicians that I regard as basically among the most courageous physicians on the face of the earth, right? And these are physicians who were willing to deal with pain management issues among people who were or had been addicted to illegal drugs. Because the reality is, using these opioids illegally doesn't necessarily prevent you from having pain. And you walk into a doctor's office, and the doctor's got a hard time saying, does this person in real pain? Or are they just trying to scam me so that they can get a prescription for opioids that they want to use for their, whether it's recreational, whatever you want to call it. And the doctor's willing to live on the edge in dealing with that sort of stuff, I just had immense admiration for. And they went after him with a vengeance. 
And I remember reading the the cases, the appellate cases in his, in his matter. I do think that, you know, the physicians who are willing to deal with the people who have pain and a use disorder are very few and far between. And, and the problem is, you know, it's already dangerous just to cut someone off uh, precipitously or forcibly taper them who has pain and no evidence of a use disorder. There are many studies that show it puts people at a much threefold greater risk of overdose or death by suicide. I mean, it's a very dangerous practice that's happening to lots of pain patients today. But it's even more dangerous if someone may have a use disorder, right? They're in some ways the most vulnerable patients. But you're right about what you said a little while ago about what's driving the overdose crisis, at least since we started paying attention to it in the last Mm -hmm. decade. Um, And that is largely a very potent tampered with street supply. The latest numbers from the CDC show that it's, you know, deaths are up 140% related to illicit fentanyl. Stimulants play an increasing role. Heroin also plays a role. Uh, Deaths related to prescribed opioids are actually down at this point. But we never saw the huge numbers that we've seen until people were really using this sort of dangerous street supply. A lot of policymakers now believe that pain isn't really undertreated, that it's just a pharmaceutical ruse. I mean, what we see is these crazy pendulum swings in this country. And what I've seen, the Sacklers put in scare quotes, opioid crisis, to try and pretend that it didn't exist or understate it. Um, And today, in laws and policies, policymakers are putting undertreated pain when they talk about the history of what happened, also in these quotes, to say that that didn't really exist. And so I would definitely say that, you know, pharmaceutical companies in the Sackler family in particular, you know, hijacked the conversation and did a lot of damage. Um, But it's more complicated than that, right? I mean, there are some studies that show that drug overdose deaths have been on a steady upward trajectory since the 1940s, and the drug of choice has just changed, you know? My own view is that uh, aggressive pharmaceutical marketing and, and liberal prescribing did harm, and that the genie is a little hard to put back in the bottle, you know, because once you start with prohibition, you end up getting a more dangerous supply. Yeah, I was going to say that I I just remember, you know, uh, years ago, maybe back in the late 70s or 80s, there was a a friend of mine, a drug expert named Dr. John Morgan at the CUNY Medical School, and he loved puncturing popular myths about drugs. And he coined the term opiophobia, to refer to the irrational fear of opioids. Uh, and, and what he meant by this was that you had cases of patients who would be lying on their deathbed, dying from cancer in horrific pain, and would be refusing opioids to manage their pain because, quote unquote, they didn't want to die an addict, or their family members who, who were refusing the pain medication, or nurses and doctors who actually believed that stuff and were allowing people to die in horrific pain because of this pervasive opiophobia. You know, I guess in a way, it almost seems like a semi-American sort of perspective that we have a hard time finding that reasonable balance. Either we're in a kind of super moralistic prohibitionist mentality about this drug or that, or on the other hand, we're in some super capitalistic marketing, there is nothing wrong here. And finding that middle ground is the one that becomes such a challenge. Absolutely. The lack of nuance is is extraordinary. And even though, as I said, I could see some of this swing, even in stigmatization with HIV, now that I've sort of entered the drug policy conversation, nowhere are there more myths um, and is there more sort of shame and, and misperception than in anything related to drugs, right? And a lot of this has been going on in the U.S. for 
for centuries. And so when they're being cautious now in the crackdown, I mean, part of this comes from greater awareness. Part of this comes from law enforcement agencies beginning to go after some doctors. Some of it comes from new state laws and regulations, things like, I mean, how does this movement to, you know, so dramatically restrict access to opioids happen? Well, I think a lot of it was driven by sort of the media narrative and the way the story is is told, where you had a lot of stories about, um, you know, a teenager who had a bum ankle uh, and went to the doctor and, you know, was the high school football star or the cheerleader and then became addicted. They were very compelling stories. No one wants to believe that they're sending their child to a doctor and condemning them eventually to death. Uh, And we did have, of course, a rise in overdose deaths. Now, it's interesting because Maya Salavitz wrote a really interesting piece for the Columbia Journalism Review, and, and she talked to some folks who were keeping databases of stories. And journalists were really just interested in that story. They were looking for people who had never had issues before, who were not using them at a party, but who had been prescribed an opioid by a doctor because that's a compelling victim. And I think doctors became shamed and blamed for causing people's teenagers to die on the streets, which is a pretty a pretty powerful message. And, you know, we did let it go on for way too long before anybody stepped in to do a lot about it. Yeah, but, but, you know, one thing that also kind of pissed me off about that whole period was obviously you had these stories that you're talking about and, and doctors being careless and incautious. But the fact of the matter was, was that even among people getting addicted in that way, you know, what was called iatrogenically addicted by, by physician prescribing, huge numbers of these fatalities were actually not taking too much of the one drug they're being prescribed. They involved what might be called fatal drug combinations. You know, it might have been a football player, you know, who was injured and was taking oxys, uh, but he goes to a party and gets drunk, not being aware that combining alcohol and oxys um, is a thing that will kill you or oxys and benzodiazepines, Valium type drugs. And meanwhile, the government and all the sort of drug educators are averse to putting out the information that what is really dangerous is the combination of drugs that may feel really good if you combine them in the right amount, but it just double that level may stop you breathing. So yes, doctors were to blame, but the failure of public health authorities and government officials and school authorities, I think, also played a very big role in educating people about what were the safer or more dangerous ways to be using these substances, whether you already be using them medically or whether you were using them recreationally or something in between. Without question. And that continues to be a problem. I mean, these deaths were always like what they call polypharmacy deaths, right? They usually involve multiple drugs used in combination. One of the states that had higher death rates found that the average number of substances in someone's body who died was six. Right. But the headline would read heroin death oftentimes, or oxy-death. And there's, I mean, and, and the fatal drug combination thing would either never show up in the article, maybe because they didn't have the autopsy report as yet, or when it did, it wasn't part of the headline because it wasn't provocative. And because talking about, what was it, polydrug overdose doesn't make for a catchy headline in the way that heroin or oxycontin or something like that does. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, all of the drugs, even the drugs that are attributed to prescription opioids, the way they're counted, that doesn't mean that the opioid, prescription opioid caused death, that means that a prescription opioid was in someone's system at the time of death. They could have also had fentanyl, heroin, alcohol, benzodiazepine in their system and cocaine, right? But it would still be counted as a prescription opioid related death. It caused this culture of real fear, I think, and, you know, not very scientific conveyance of of the problem. And that continues to be the case. I mean, very few people talk about 
drug combinations, certainly in the media. Fentanyl is now in the media a lot, but, you know, even then they don't really talk about the difference between illicitly produced fentanyl and, you know, pharmaceutical use and, and all of that. It's just sort of, you know, this, the scare tactics. Yeah. I mean, what's different about the fentanyl now, of course, right, is that fentanyl is the drug that can kill you all by itself. I mean, it's 50 times more potent per gram or whatever than morphine. And so that is a real issue. But it's typically, you know, being uh, uh, mixed with other things as well. So we, we can suspect that fentanyl is the primary thing driving it, you know. But meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of people are receiving fentanyl post-surgery in hospitals. It's one of the best drugs you can give for that sort of thing. And the fentanyl overdose problem in America has nothing to do with fentanyl being diverted, right? It's fentanyl being produced illegally in China and Mexico and being imported here in ways that are impossible for law enforcement to stop. Uh, which is why accurate information is all the more important. So, 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 Kate, I mean, the, the evolution of this thing, you know, as the crackdown mounts um, on opioid prescribing, what are the key ingredients to all of this? Well, I, I think that, as I mentioned, I think we were caught a little as a society flat-footed. And in 2016, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States issued this guidance to try and sort of help guide doctors in safer prescribing practices. Because as you mentioned, because pain is sort of ignored as a, as a condition and under, under-treated and underrepresented, it's also underrepresented in medical education. Doctors, even though pain is one of the top clinical complaints in the world, very little uh, in medical education addresses the treatment of pain, at least in basic medical education. And so the CDC stepped in and said, well, we need to, you know, explain what the risks are to doctors and encourage them, you know, to try other things first to treat pain. And when they are prescribing, to prescribe at the lowest effective dose for the shortest effective period of time. And all of that was a sensible thing. What happened, though, is that there were a couple of provisions uh, related to this problem, like the dentist who prescribed 50 Oxycontin after dental surgery, um, the attempt to kind of contain prescribing for acute pain. So you didn't have a lot of people with this leftover supply in their in their medicine chests. And the CD said, CDC said that with a, a lot of acute pain conditions, you're not going to need more than a three to seven day supply. And then, then in a different provision, there was this other problem that they identified, which was in the 90s, there was this idea that you just titrated dose to, to palliation. So um, you kept going up and there, as long as someone was still in pain, there wasn't a danger in giving them increasingly higher doses. And so there was this feeling that people were on an unsafe level or that we didn't want to start people on an unsafe level because there were some studies coming out showing that there was you know, an elevation of risk with an elevation of dose. The absolute risk still isn't extraordinarily high. There was a study in North Carolina that looked at people who'd been prescribed even at higher doses and found that their risk of overdose was something like 0.022%. It wasn't hugely high as an absolute matter, but your risk definitely goes up depending on the dosage you're prescribed. And so in that provision, they said, be careful prescribing more than 50 to 90 morphine milligram equivalents. And that's just an attempt to take all of these different medications and put them on the same scale. That's what they mean by equivalence. 
what happened is in the haste to address what people saw as many people dying on the streets, state legislatures enacted strict limits to opioid prescribing for acute prescribing. Insurance companies came in and said they won't approve more than a certain morphine milligram equivalent. The DEA and state medical boards started to look at prescribing patterns through prescription drug monitoring programs. And doctors started getting letters. Letters from police agencies or from medical review boards or? From DEA agents, from medical boards, uh, from the U.S. attorney's offices, just, you know, different levels of law enforcement. And, and that sort of thing had been going on, I think, back in the 80s and early 90s, right? There was a period when the DEA Office of Diversion Control and others were sending these letters. And I guess they backed off, maybe backed off too much and then started redoing it again? Yeah, maybe. But in those days, we didn't have prescription drug monitoring programs in all the states. Now the information is pretty widely available. And what's happening now is even worse. There's sort of uh, the companies that run these agencies come up with what they call a NARCS care score. They have an algorithm that tries to rate someone's risk for misuse, and people are being denied care based on that. And, you know, dosage is one thing. Whether you've had more than one providers is another, which can be a proxy for doctor shopping and trying to get medication that way to misuse. But it also can be that you live in a rural area and have to go to an urban area to see a doctor or your doctor's practice closed, so you had to go get a new doctor. I mean, there are lots of more innocent reasons. There was just this huge proliferation of policies. I mean, one study found it was something like almost 500 in a period of a few years. And a lot of them are very strict. And um, I actually met with the, the CDC, as did some others who were seeing problems in this area. And the CDC came out and issued a corrective and said that was a misapplication of its guideline. But that correction has not filtered down to the lives of, of patients. And so there are a lot of a lot of patients who are really caught in the lurch. And I would say that, you know, it, there's also this problem, of course, that it doesn't affect everyone equally, you know, because of the way we've waged the drug war disproportionately against communities of color. And uh, because of systemic racism, even in pain treatment, there are lots of studies that show that the pain of BIPOC folks are rated less severe by many clinicians because of false beliefs about biological differences that do not scientifically exist. I mean, we have a woman in our group went into an ER, black woman, and the nurse called the cops on her just for reporting pain because they thought she was trying to get drugs. Right, right. Racist beliefs that black people don't experience pain to the same degree as white. And then you have pharmacies in black neighborhoods that are less likely to carry opioids. I mean, it's just it was pervasive throughout the entire system in many regards. Absolutely. And even, you know, with the pharmacies, that's even controlled for, for income. It's remarkable. But a lot of pharmacies in, in black neighborhoods don't stock opioids. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. With Drug Policy Alliance, and we were fighting some of the stupid policies and stigma that people in methadone maintenance confronted. And one of the issues we, we dealt with was that there was, first of all, a less is more ideology. So doctors were saying, well, 60 milligrams, all the scientific research showed that closer to 100 milligrams would be the appropriate dose for maintenance and that that's what you should aim for. But the less is more ideology meant that people were being underprescribed methadone, therefore it wasn't working as well. Therefore, there was an anti-sentiment among patients. And the second thing that happened, and this, you know, is that whereas 100 milligrams might be the appropriate dose for the majority of people, and some could deal with lower, then you get these occasional oddballs for whom the appropriate dose was three or four or 500 milligrams, right? Just the way that they were wired. And I imagine you have the same phenomenon happening in the pain management area. Yeah, you definitely do. I mean, you have people who are hyper and hypo metabolizers of, of opioids. Like in Europe, they actually test for that. We don't do that in the US. And so, yeah, there are people who are going to require more. But because of this 50 to 90 range that was written in a guideline that was designed as recommendations for primary care physicians and not as law or policy. We now have a rapid uptake throughout the healthcare system sort of suggesting that anybody over 90 is a risk. And so people are being forced to lower doses. There was one study of Medicaid patients in Vermont that showed the average time of discontinuation was 24 hours, which is really dangerous. And about half of them had to be hospitalized as a result. But even for those that are just tapered down to 90, it's being done in a quick and reckless manner. And for some people, they really needed to be on those higher doses and their quality of life suffers terribly. And, you know, again, the studies show this kind of tapering, you know, there could be careful tapering with a lot of other adjunctive therapies thrown in that can absolutely, you know, improve the lives of some people. But 
the way it's happening in the real world is endangering people's health, uh, destabilizing people. I hear from people all the time who are acutely suicidal. I hear from people who've lost someone to an overdose after the pain medication was denied. I hear from people who are now bedridden, who can no longer work, and families who are financially devastated. It's causing a great deal of harm. And, you know, some 8 to 13 million people use opioids to manage pain. That's a pretty big number of people to be affected. So by and large, this proliferation of state laws and regulations and all of the other things around it in terms of the shift by physicians and by insurance companies, one could argue then that it's done some good in terms of pushing physicians to correct a pre-existing problem with overprescribing and encouraging them to look at alternatives to opioids before they go to opioids, but that in terms of the harm it's generating, in terms of depriving people of access to opioids for legitimate needs, that probably this push is doing a lot more harm than good. When, when push comes to shove? I think it's doing both. I mean, I think that's the sort of the problem, it, just like liberal prescribing. I mean, some people who may have needed medication got it when it was only limited to cancer, but a lot of people were harmed as a result of liberal prescribing. And then when you have a sort of clampdown, yeah, it's, it's helping some people who may not be exposed, who would have been vulnerable, but it's also hurting a whole other group of people. You know, we just talked about the issues around race and racism in terms of pain management. We've touched on the issues around class and that people of better resources can look around, as you did, right, and able to find somebody, whereas that's not the case. Um, but then there's also a gender issue, right? I mean, aren't women more likely to request, need, or whatever uh, painkillers? Well, yeah, there's a huge gender issue in, in the pain area. Some studies suggest that up to 70% of people with chronic pain are women, or at least female identifying. And there are studies also showing that women experience more pain, experience pain more severely. There is some recent interesting data around that uh, that's sort of based in how we've traditionally had testing. So all of our biomedical testing is done on animals, rats, and mice. And it was only in 2016 that NIH, the National Institutes of Health in the United States anyway, started to say that you needed to use more than just male animals when you're trying to find out more about diseases. But at least in animals, entirely different cells are involved in what makes pain become chronic in male and female animals. Uh, glial cell activation in males and T cell activation uh, in females. And so there may very well be a biologic reason for this disparity. Of course, there may also be a number of social reasons. But what we find is I, I like to say that pain is sort of a me too issue in a, in a similar way. I use the hashtag pain too, because women are far more often dismissed or disbelieved. We also know that relationships matter, you know, whether you go to a provider who believes your pain and listens to you. <laughs> Just listening to your story, right? That can be ameliorative rather than being dismissed. That can actually right. be a form of treatment. Or these studies where they show that a physician who sits down by the bedside and touches the patient for a few minutes and talks to them for 10 minutes, people require less prescription drugs, get out of the hospital faster, suffer less pain, you know, goes up significantly as a result of that simple human interaction. Right. Other countries have fewer problems, I think, at least in sort of Western Europe and other places. And that is, they also, I think their healthcare systems are set up to deal with pain. They'll let people off of work long enough to really heal from something. You know, the, the incentive in this country is very much, you know, 
take a pill so you can get back to work. So yeah, I think there are structural, interpersonal, and and belief systems all play a role. The tough thing is that, you know, pain responses is really individual. It's individual because pain comes from a variety of conditions and ideologies. You know, you may have inflammatory pain from an autoimmune disorder. You may have neuropathic pain uh, from a neurological problem. They're going to be treat need to be really treated differently. They're not the same kind of problem. So diagnosis matters a lot. Severity, you know, is wide ranging. And so a system like we have in the United States for for payers, for insurers, covering some things and not others, different incentives come in. But I think we do need to expand access to these other modes. But what's happening sometimes is that insurers will say, okay, you have to do this or that, or you have to try all of these things. And only if you exhaust them, do you get this? And and people are also pushed into things like, you know, in more interventional things um, like nerve blocks or surgeries or medical devices, which, you know, also uh, have a pharma related potential issue. I think that may be the next big issue we see. And all of those things were helpful to me, right? I, I had a spinal stimulator, which is an implanted surgical device that helped me. But you're you're sometimes seeing people being pushed into procedures that also are more dangerous to that person than taking, you know, a prescribed opioid is. I'm curious, when you talk about you know, a doctor of yours who cut you off suddenly, you know, and you're a lawyer, um, has any doctor ever been successfully sued for malpractice for suddenly cutting somebody off their opioids and having that patient die or something else terrible happen? You know, I haven't heard of a lawsuit. I have heard of a lot of people, you know, having heart attacks or things like tachycardia, you know, and then there's this, you know, as, as a lawyer, there are causation arguments and people like to mm-hmm. poke holes and say that sort of like what we saw in the George Floyd trial, right? You know, it was the fentanyl. Mm-hmm. But anyway, there are lots of <laughs> attempts to muddy the waters about why someone had something medically happen. Um, the only thing I know of that happened is that I believe in New Hampshire, for the first time, maybe last year, a state medical board actually sanctioned a doctor for doing that. So wow. most of the letters and sanctions that go out are about, oh, you're prescribing too much, and this was, you endangered this person's life. I'd love to see a story like that get major media attention because that's the only way to some extent to correct what's been going on, you know? Now, you know, I should also just come clean in this because even as I've been sympathetic and actually, you know, devoted part of my organization's resources to advocating for the sorts of things that that your organization is now advocating for, I had my own personal pain experience. You know, I mean, I had, you know, when I was 24, I suddenly had a terrible back pain where I couldn't stand up straight for a few weeks and it was terrible. Finally, it got so bad. And the doctor said, well, this was in the um, in the mid 80s. And he said, well, there is an intervention. It's called chemopapain. We inject something into your spine and it, and it can work well, but there's a 1% chance of paralysis. So I turned down that treatment and miraculously got better. And then when I was in my young 30s, the pain just became overwhelming. And I got a MRI or CAT scan and they diagnosed, you know, herniated discs. And I was on painkillers and this and that. And, and some massage would work a little bit for an hour or two, but not really. And a surgeon was going to operate on me. And, um, you know, under the advice of a, of a friend who was a physician, he said, don't get it. And what he suggested, I read a book called Healing Back Pain by John Sarno. And he was, you know, a serious physician at the uh, Rusk Institute at at NYU uh, Medical Center. And his view, in fact, was that the vast majority of people who got diagnosed with herniated discs and were suffering lower back pain, that in fact, their pain had nothing to do with the herniated disc, 
right? And he had a whole theory basically that said that when you look at MRIs and CAT scans, you see huge numbers of people with herniated discs and no pain. And conversely, you have huge numbers of people with pain, but no herniated discs. So the notion that there was a causal relationship between the two didn't seem to work very well. And his theory was that, in fact, what was going on was that one was suffering from an underlying emotional pain, anger, frustrations, whatever, and that the brain played a trick whereby the emotional pain got converted into a physical pain. And, and, and he assumed that the method was that the brain would curtail the flow of blood around the nerves and muscles to that part of the body. And what the pain was, whether it was back pain or sciatic or something else, was to some extent culturally determined. And that in the end, when, that there was basically nothing wrong with my back. And I just needed to accept this diagnosis. I needed to get right off the opioids and the benzos, benzodiazepines the doctor had put me on. And I followed his approach, and it worked. And it caused me to believe that maybe a very significant number of people in the country suffering from kind of a chronic back pain or sciatica might have something similar, that we're living in a culture where this type of form of pain and disability is very culturally accepted. It's the most, it's number one cause of missed days of work, that yes, people do have conditions like you had and many others have where they have an accident or, you know, other sorts of things, but that in fact, it was a type of emotional pain being morphed into a physical pain for which opioids um, basically didn't work and for which surgery was inappropriate. He pointed out that people who had had surgery for herniated discs were just as likely to suffer recurrence of pain three years later as people who had never had the surgery. And so I, it caused me to believe that when you look at a lot of the people suffering from these, these addiction and the misuse of opioids, it may be from certain types of pain that we believe is physical, that feels incredibly physical, because you can't believe that that level of pain could actually just be caused by emotional stuff. Absolutely. And I have friends who've had told me that exact same story about John Sorno's book, Changing Their Lives. So I have, I've heard that many times. Do you think now that the pendulum is swinging back towards a more balanced perspective, that the CDC is getting its act together, that maybe the the doctors are beginning to learn, or are we still swinging in the wrong direction? I think that we will remain opiophobic for a while. I have seen public health agencies, including the CDC and the FDA and the Department of Health and Human Services come out against, for example, forced tapering. I have seen no slowing in the number of random you know, daily emails and phone calls I receive from desperate people all over the country. It has not filtered down to the lives of the people, it, you know, who are most deeply affected. And although I do think there was some recognition, um, otherwise these public health agencies wouldn't have come out and said, you know, this and this is a problem. And we're trying to, you know, and the CDC did say to policymakers, hey, you're, you know, these were not intended to be strict limits. The, the science behind these recommendations is nowhere near where it would need to be to do what you've done with it. I still think that we will be in um, an opioid phobic period for some time. I think the general public still thinks we are in a place where prescription opioids and overprescribing are driving deaths on the street. Politicians still think that we are back 10 years ago and that they need to be really aggressive. And frankly, the progressive media has no appetite for this side. They have bought the, the big bad pharma opioids, bad narratives so completely that they do not want to touch this Do you issue. have any any significant allies among elected officials in Congress or even at the gubernatorial level? In places, yes. Um, I can, not 
be terribly public, but there are some who are, who are allied. Some of them, unfortunately, are no longer there. Were allies a few years ago. But there's no public champions on this issue. Not many. There are a couple. Ironically, they intend to be the doctors who are in the Congress <laughs> who have a yeah. deeper understanding of this. Um, it is. It's so interesting as someone who is politically progressive myself that you know, oftentimes uh, it's the more libertarian or conservative representatives that can see this side of it. I think a lot of progressives, although not all, just see this as a pharmaceutical ruse. Part of my doing this program is the hope that people will listen to this and have a more enlightened view of drugs and drug policy and drug treatment in their own lives, right? Whether it means about the drugs they take or about the patients they have or about the politicians they support. Now, you've started this organization. I'm very excited about it. I know other people as well. I mean, where do you see the places where you think you're going to be able to make the greatest difference in the coming years? Well, one aspect is just bringing together, I think, the the pain uh, community and the sort of drug policy and addiction communities. These communities have been divided, largely because of the stigma around d- drug use. Um, pain patients, for the first time, had the stigma of addiction thrown their way, and so they want to point fingers and blame people who they see as misusing medication or uh, who become addicted. People with addiction, some want to say, hey, it's you people in pain who messed it up. If you people hadn't you know, been such whiners, then evil pharma wouldn't have come in here and we wouldn't have all of these people dead and all of these people addicted. And so there's a lot of finger pointing. And so one of the things our organization does is sort of bring those groups together. And we have a significant community council of people with a lot of different types of pain. We have a community council of people in recovery from addiction. We have a science and policy council of people who are experts in drug policy and addiction and pain management, as well as a number of health policy and civil rights and disability rights experts in in sort of legislation. And one of the things we're trying to do is in addition to playing whack-a-mole and reacting and stopping these policies, which we have been fairly successful at, at doing, is to get everyone at the table and come up, you know, what do we need? What would good policy, good pain policy look like that represents everyone's needs. Because the problem has been that no one has looked at this very comprehensively. I mean, we know we need more coverage of certain things. And I've worked with that in some issues. And I'm on a task force for women in pain. And there are all of these silos focusing on different sub-segments of the issue. But I feel like there's not enough coming together with a variety of lived experiences and expertise to really tackle the big picture see that this is a complicated situation that requires some complicated answers. Well, Kay, listen, I'm, I'm just incredibly impressed with the work that you're doing. I'm very grateful for your taking the time to uh, have this long conversation with me. So thank you so much for joining me and, uh, you know, more power to everything you're trying to accomplish. The organization that you started, Drug Policy Alliance, is, is by far the superstar in this arena and has been such a great ally. Um, and I've learned so much from people within that organization and community. So uh, it's just an absolute honor. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Adelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Abhivit Baryosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 
1-833-psycho-0. That's 1-833-psycho-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.